The noise and chatter of the great feast lessens slightly as the jongleur, the minstrel, begins to draw his bow over his vieja, a large oval fiddle. Everyone in the hall turns towards the jongleur, eager to hear tales of heroes and conquest, of battles and voyages. What song does the jongleur have for us today? The jongleur raises his voice so that all those present can hear. He speaks not in Latin, the language of the church, which most here barely understand a word of, but in romance, the same language those present were chatting in just moments ago. In the jongleur's tales, not only the language, but the content of the Bible is vulgarized and aligned with the visions of people living a millennia after the creation of their holy book. Jesus Christ is present here, but he's barely recognizable compared to his counterpart in the New Testament. In the epic romance tales of medieval France, the trials and tribulations of a pacifist Middle Eastern carpenter have become infused with the values of an age which prizes brute force above all other virtues. The jongleur, Grandor of Douai as he's known, grins slightly as he begins his recitation. Most of the crowd already knows this one, and it always kills. La Chanson d'Antioche The Song of Antioch Lords, be peaceful and leave the noise behind if you want to hear a glorious song. No better one will you hear from any jongleur. It's about the holy city and it's worthy of praise where God let his body be wounded and harmed and pierced by the lance and placed on the cross. Jerusalem call it those who wish to name it. Those new jonglers who sing nowadays, the true beginning they have left behind. But Grandor of Dwe doesn't wish to forget it. He has brought back all the verses. Today you will hear of Jerusalem and those who went there to worship the sepulchre of Christ. How armies were assembled from everywhere. From France, from Berry, from Auvergne, from Apulia, from Calabria, to Barlet-sur-Mer. Up to Wales they asked for reinforcements. In many lands that I know not how to name. No man had ever heard of such a voyage. For God, they had to endure many pains, thirst, hunger, and cold, remaining vigilant and fasting. The Lord must have recompensed them well and received their souls in His glory. Now, lords, listen to what the scripture says. You must remember God who has made all of you. When He made you, He placed you all in a sweet repose. Never would you have had to work if Adam had not sinned. God sent his son to earth to pull you from hell, and he delivered his body that was attached to the cross. Pilate and the Jews all did him injury, and he loves us so much 
that he gave us his name. Christians is our name, and we call him Christ, because we believe he suffered death for us. It would be just that we remember it here, that Christians took the cross for him, and that they went to avenge him from the people of the Antichrist, who don't believe in him, don't serve or obey him, who, as much as they can, despise his commandments. For that, it would be just to destroy them, to chase them from the earth, leaving not one. And Jesus would give to our souls an abundance of graces. Barons, here an excellent couplet. This age is highly treacherous. It wants to fool us. There is no more justice. No one sees the truth. We have to be on guard to save our souls. The devil is near us and wants to enchant us. We must be better wary of his ruses. Our Lord asks that we go to Jerusalem to slay the pagans and destroy the faithless folk who wish not to believe in God or honor his actions nor follow his commandments. Muhammad, Tervagant, must be erased by us. We must melt down their images and offer God the material. Erect and repair churches and monasteries and liberate them from tribute so that there are no more pagans who dare ask them for it. The good barons of France won't tarry. They go to these unknown countries. And there, they become savages to save their souls. Lords, for the love of God, calm down if you can hear me. For leaving this world, you will enter a better one. As soon as God was taken by the Jews, tormented, wounded, and hurt by the nails and the lance, to his right, a thief was erected. Dismas was the name with which he was baptized. He truly believed in God. For that, he should have his recompense. When he saw Jesus expiring, he began to speak to him, like a man sentenced to death. King, son of the Virgin, your clemency is so great. Save me alongside you when you go to heaven. You should do well to ensure you get your revenge on these wicked Jews from whom you have received so many offenses. When our Lord heard this, he turned toward him. Friend, he said, they aren't yet born. Those who will avenge me with steel swords. They will come slay the unbelieving pagans who have always opposed my law. Holy Christianity will be fulfilled. 
My land conquered, my country delivered. From today in a thousand years, they will be baptized and raised. And then will the Holy Sepulchre be reconquered and adored. They will serve me as if I had engendered them. They will all be my sons. I will be their advocate. In celestial paradise, they will have their inheritance. And you will be, this day, crowned with me. On the other side, to the left, they had hung a thief. By his baptismal name, Justus, he was known. A companion he was to the one who believed in Jesus, who he saw anguish from the great passion, from the nails on the lance and from bitter poison that had been given to him by the treacherous traitors. Now he spoke cruelly and maliciously. Companion, said he to Dismas, you have a crazy idea to think that this one here might aid you in your time of need. He couldn't save his own body. How would he save yours? From today in a thousand years, said he, we will have our relief. When the day he speaks of is come, you and all those who await his gift, you will all have been destroyed. You will have no reward. Fools are all those who await what here has been promised to us. Then spoke the thief, who truly believed. Alas, what have you said of omnipotent God? Me and you should hang to painful torment. Always have we pillaged and erred evilly, but not the Lord of the world who sees all and consents. Those who truly believe in him should never fear ever feeling the intoxication of putrid hell. Friends, said our Lord, know all truly. That from across the sea will come a new people to avenge their father's death. No pagans will be left here in the east. The Franks will have the land delivered. And those who are taken or killed during this expedition, their soul, upon leaving the body, will come to our kingdom. And yours will enter there today by my commandment. And the souls of all those who truly believe will be, likewise, with me. Hello, and welcome to History of the Ultramare, episode 2.3. God wills it? You sure about that? You sure about that's why? Today, we'll be talking about holy war as it was understood by 11th century Christians living in Western Europe. But as I've said before, part of working with history is in large part translating past events and mentalities to our own context. We can't ever really know what life is like for any other individual, 
much less someone living over a thousand years ago. But we can try. If you're listening to this podcast, it's because you have an interest in understanding the events of the past. I won't pretend to know exactly what drives that interest for each of you individually, but for me, I find these events fascinating, not only in a vacuum as tales that stand on their own narrative merit, but for the way they help me see my own world in a different light, as just a blip in a long, winding tale of human achievements and failures. History, and the way it's told, can be weaponized, though. The events of the past are often mined to seek justification for our actions today. Calling upon history can give legitimacy to a movement, an ideology, a war. And it can warp the way the events in the past are perceived by those who have to live with the consequences. A bit of a content warning, I'll be speaking about modern events that have happened within my own lifetime and probably most of yours. Specifically, terrorism, as it's used by modern movements such as Islamic extremism and white supremacy. If you would rather not hear about this, you can jump ahead to 21 minutes, 34 seconds. Though I believe these comments give much needed perspective to the rest of the episode, I understand that these topics may be sensitive for some, or that you might simply not want any discussion of more current events mixed in with your history podcast. I won't be referencing them directly afterwards, so feel free to jump ahead and keep on rocking in the 11th century. Once again, that timestamp is 21 minutes, 34 seconds. As I'm sitting here recording this episode, it is September 12th, 2021, the day after the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks committed by Al-Qaeda against the USA. I myself was living in the US in Chicago, Illinois at the time, 20 years ago, when holy war, murder in the name of God, showed that it was still a part of our lives. It would be ridiculous of me to not acknowledge that fact. No comprehensive discussion of the Crusades, or indeed the Crusader states, can entirely avoid the way these medieval events have been distorted by time, and still form a part of relationships between the traditionally at least Christian West and Muslim East. In The Crusades, a reader, edited by S.J. Allen and Emily Ampt, published in 2014, the authors state, quote, On September 11, 2001, the terrorist group Al-Qaeda hijacked four airplanes in the U.S., flying two of them into the World Trade Center Twin Towers, one into the Pentagon, and the last into a field in rural Pennsylvania. The loss of life numbered in the thousands. These events prompted much debate on the nature of East-West and Christian-Muslim relations, and the perceived history of conflict and coexistence between these entities. It can be argued that their respective views on the Crusades also played a part in the polarization of these two cultures. By the turn of the 21st century, some in the Muslim community had developed a fixed definition of crusading, linking it closely to imperialism and the West's hostility toward the Islamic religion. The West, on the other hand, had seen the term broaden to encompass any number of causes or events that were deemed to be morally right. Much has been made of President George W. Bush's use of the term crusade in his response to the 9-11 attacks. End quote. What the authors of this text are referencing is an event that took place on September 16, 2001, 20 years ago this Friday, when then-U.S. President George W. Bush responded to questions from reporters on the White House South Lawn, and as part of a response to a question concerning how measures taken to combat terrorism would affect the rights of Americans, he said the following. We need to go back to work tomorrow, and we will. But we need to be alert to the fact that... Um, 
that these evildoers still exist. We haven't seen this kind of barbarism in a long period of time. No one could have conceivably imagined uh, suicide bombers burrowing into our society and then emerging all on the same day to fly their aircraft, fly U.S. aircraft into buildings full of innocent people and show no remorse. And uh, this is a new kind of uh, a new kind of evil. And uh, we all we'll uh, we understand. And the American people are beginning to understand. Now, this is this 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 crusade. This war on terrorism uh, is going to take a while. Osama bin Laden, the head of al-Qaeda at the time, would go on to use Bush's words to bolster his claims that Western intervention in the Middle East was part of a crusade against Islam. Both Bush and his administration later stated that his use of the word crusade was not meant to invoke the ghost of medieval holy war, but was instead being used to refer to a greater moral struggle. To quote then White House Press Secretary Ari Fleischer, I think to the degree that that word has any connotations that would upset any of our partners or anybody else in the world, the president would regret if anything like that was conveyed. But the purpose of his conveying it is in the traditional English sense of the word. It's a broad cause. End quote. According to the White House at the time, it was, in short, a poor choice of words then. A Wall Street Journal article published five days later on September 21st, 2001, titled Crusade Reference Reinforces Fears War on Terrorism is Against Muslims, referred to it as, quote, an indelicate gaffe. Whether Bush's phrasing was merely indelicate or if, as bin Laden claimed, he did indeed want to wage a Christian war against Islam is well beyond the scope of this podcast to determine. But I can say that 20 years later, describing the quote-unquote war on terror as a quote-unquote crusade would read very differently. Nowadays, crusading imagery is recognized as a huge part of Islamophobic and white supremacist rhetoric, and it would be hard to imagine someone accidentally using it in this context. On July 27, 2011, a white supremacist terrorist murdered 77 people in Norway. He described himself as a modern-day crusader. On January 29, 2017, another terrorist murdered six people in a mosque in Quebec City. His social media was full of images of crusader nights alongside racist vitriol. And on March 15, 2019, yet another terrorist murdered 51 people and injured 49 in Christchurch, New Zealand. His manifesto, because all these fucks have manifestos, stated in all caps, Ask yourself, what would Pope Urban II do? Meanwhile, in the Middle East, not only Al-Qaeda, as I mentioned, but groups such as ISIS, have frequently portrayed their enemies as crusaders bent on the destruction of Islam in an attempt to justify acts of terrorism around the world, mostly in their own communities, though. This episode is not about modern-day perceptions and portrayals of the Crusades or the Crusader states, though we will probably discuss that one day. For now, I will mention that this topic, alongside others, is dealt with very well by Amy S. Kaufman and Paul B. Sturdivant in their 2020 book, The Devil's Historians, How Modern Extremists Abuse the Medieval Past. Chapter 3, The Clash of Civilizations, and Chapter 6, Medievalism and Religious Extremism, both tackle the concept of medieval holy war and how it's used by modern-day terrorists. However, this episode is about medieval conceptions of holy war. But to understand that, I do feel that we need to deal with some of the baggage we're bringing to the table. So I bring up the topic of modern-day abuses for two reasons. One, I feel obligated to do so. 
I love history, but I also live in this world, now, in 2021. And though I do feel we can make parallels between past events and the present, when this is done in a way that justifies the most atrocious of acts, I'm infuriated. I was 8 years old in 2001, and I remember the fear. It's called terrorism for a reason, after all. I was just old enough to grasp the insanity of what the terrorists wanted. They wanted me and everything I knew to die and disappear. As I grow older, I'm even more disturbed as this sort of violence seems to have become commonplace, and my heart aches even more for the victims of terrorism. The events in Christchurch a few years ago in particular horrified me. The most important thing to keep in mind is that none of these people understand the Crusades. They don't want to understand the Crusades. They want to think of their crimes as justified, and to do so, they've conjured up an image of the past that is not real, not even close to real. I really don't expect any of my listeners to be terrorists or approve of terrorism. I guess if by some reason you are in that camp, if you feel you've been radicalized or that you want to commit acts of violence against innocent people, please seek professional help from a therapist. Either way, I feel obligated to mention that some of the rhetoric we'll be dealing with today has been repurposed for these acts of terrorism and just general bigotry. The second reason I bring all this up is because, well, time. Time distorts events. It turns out not only beauty, but also history is in the eye of the beholder. Remember, history is just the story, the one we've settled on using the best analytical methods we have, hopefully, but remaining, as always, fallible humans. And when we throw academic rigor out the window and instead choose to paint history in a light that's suitable for our own aims, we can end up with some pretty twisted stories. Over a thousand years have passed between the time Pope Urban made his speech and our own day, roughly the same amount of time that had passed from the writing of the Christian New Testament and Pope Urban's speech in 1095. And there was a lot of distortion going on in the first millennium as well. As Thomas Asbridge puts it in The First Crusade, A New History, quote, Pope Urban II did not conjure the idea of a crusade from thin air, nor did he consider the concept of holy war to be revolutionary or even novel. In his mind, centuries of Christian and even pre-Christian tradition legitimized the principles espoused at Claremont. It was inevitable that his ideas would be influenced by precedent, because 11th century Latin society was profoundly retrospective. Being Christian to the core, it accepted two immutable truths. Scripture, the cornerstone of the faith, was utterly unassailable, the unquestionable word of God. And at the moment of its foundation by St. Peter, the Roman church had been a precise expression of divine will. The Lord's design for mankind made manifest on earth. These two ancient rocks of perfection left a heavy imprint upon the medieval mind, fixated by this vision of a golden age in which the apostles supposedly created an ideal Christian order and governed by an immovable, authoritative text. The medieval world was obsessed with the past. But Urban and his contemporaries viewed their Christian history through a cracked and clouded lens. The glorious perfection of a bygone era to which they aspired to often owed more to fiction than to fact. The sheer malleability of history, stretched and distorted by the imprecisions of memory and twisted through willful manipulation and forgery, meant that the past that informed and enabled urban sanctification of violence was actually a shifting, tangled web of reality and imagination. Weathered by a thousand years of human history, Christian attitudes to violence had undergone an incremental, 
but drastic transformation. End quote. Before we look at the specifics of this transformation, let's get a clearer idea of what the beginning and end points look like. For the end point, we can refer to our opening today. The Chanson d'Antioche seems to have been written by a guy named Grendor of Douai in the late 12th century, a few decades after the First Crusade. Grendor claimed to be working from an earlier chanson written by a primary source he names as Richard the Pilgrim, who supposedly wrote it while participating in the First Crusade. Grendor's updated version was probably used as a key part of recruitment drives for the Third Crusade. His cover song was designed to be performed in the courts of aristocrats, as you can tell from his frequent references to his audience. Les Chaigneurs, in modern French, les Seigneurs, the Lords. As we talked about in our introduction, that period leading up to the Third Crusade was a time in which the institution of the Crusade was crystallizing. It sounds odd, but that was, in a way, when the First Crusade really happened. Because it was when the blend of holy war and pilgrimage was given a more concrete form, with certain ideas and practices that marked it out as special. So, in a way, it's an odd choice to illustrate concepts of holy war before the First Crusade, because the Chanson d'Antioche represents Frankish culture after the First Crusade, during a period of time in which the First Crusade was being mythologized, a process that obviously had a huge effect on these ideas. Still, it is a good example of the final stage of how Latin Christian values and beliefs evolved from the pacifism of early Christianity to, well, holy war proclaimed by the chief religious head, that is, the Pope. It shows the general tendencies. Folks were probably already thinking along these lines before the First Crusade, they just needed a bit more time to verbalize their thinking. If you have a passing familiarity with the Christian Bible, you might have been a bit shocked to hear how the writer of the Chanson d'Antioche chose to present the tale of Jesus and the thieves on the cross as not one more example of the New Testament's portrayal of a pacifist messiah, but as a vengeful, spiteful Christ, prophesizing the destruction of a whole bunch of folks in a millennia. The anti-Semitism is also pretty intense, though we'll have more chance to talk about that later on, unfortunately. For those of you unfamiliar with the tale of Jesus and the thieves, I'll quote the New Testament version here. I've been inconsistent with this in the past, but from now on, I'll be quoting from the New Revised Standard Version, English translation of the Bible, specifically as found in the New Oxford Annotated Bible. I actually have to do a bit of research to find a good copy of the Quran as well, though I don't think I've quoted from that directly yet. Anyway, Luke chapter 23, verse 32, quote, Two others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the Skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by, watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed we have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. End quote. So, 
The Chanson d'Antioche has a lot of the same elements, I guess. It's like the live-action Avatar The Last Airbender film versus the animated TV show. You've got Jesus and the criminals. The original Greek text of Luke doesn't indicate what kind of crimes they'd committed, so as to be strung up. However, despite the lack of specificity in the Bible, in Christian tradition, they are commonly referred to as thieves. The penitent thief, Dismas, and the impenitent thief, Justus. And the chanson follows this tradition. It uses the term unlerisch, a thief or bandit. The portrayal of these two fellas is pretty much the same. Dismas is very respectful of Jesus and all that, while Justus is a bit pushier. Typical penitent and impenitent. What's totally different is Jesus. New Testament Jesus is full-on pacifist. Fully accepting his death, and in the gospel according to Luke at least, he even asks God to forgive his murderers. You know, the whole forgive them, they know not what they do. Chanson d'Antioche Jesus, on the other hand, he's all about vengeance. Venger, meaning to avenge or get revenge on someone, is mentioned countless times in the chanson, which Bible Jesus is wholly uninterested in. And I'm not a theologian, but to my memory, nowhere in the New Testament do the Franks appear. And I did a control F search, but there's no mention of Jesus specifically saying that the Franks would avenge him in a thousand years. This is, in short, Frankish fanfiction. Complete with self-insertion. And that's what we'll be working with today. How and why did the Franks develop this little biblical what-if? Because even though they might have been expressed a bit more crudely for a lay audience, the ideals presented in the Chanson d'Antioche were firmly rooted in official Latin Christian doctrine of the era. In Guerre Sainte, Jihad, Croisade, Violence et Religion dans le Christianisme et l'Islam, or in English, Holy War, Jihad, Crusade, Violence and Religion in Christianity and Islam, French historian Jean Fleury explores the evolution of Holy War in these two Abrahamic faiths. He lays out the Christian transformation in the following way. A quick note that I don't have an English copy of this one, so I'm translating it myself. Sorry for any errors or misrepresentations. Anyway, quote, The Christianity preached by Jesus presents itself from its origins as a religion of peace that rebukes and condemns the use of violence and weapons. Towards the end of the 11th century, however, Pope Urban II preached the crusade, an expedition of holy war prescribed to Christian knights as remission of their sins and destined to recuperate by force the holy sepulcher of Jerusalem which, four centuries and a half earlier, had fallen into the hands of the Muslims. That is to say, the attitude of the Christian church with regard to war underwent, over those 11 centuries, an evolution so profound, a change so radical, that it's better to speak of it as a doctrinal revolution. End quote. Doctrinal revolution. Or doctrinal revolution. I looked it up. It's just like simony simony. You can say whatever you want, I guess. Fucking English, man. Anyway, that's what we're talking about here. But it didn't happen all at once. We can break this revolution down into three basic stages. Stage one, war bad. Stage two, war sometimes acceptable. And stage three, war good. So during the rest of this episode, we'll be focusing on how Latin Christianity moved through these steps. Early Christianity was very much in the war bad phase. But things began to change once Christianity became the state religion of the world's largest empire. In the Christian Roman Empire, war had to find a way to fit the values of the age. Here we begin to move into the war sometimes acceptable stage. 
Saint Augustine of Hippo is the traditional example here, and for good reason. Augustine was an African bishop whose writing was greatly influential in the Western Roman Empire in particular, what would become Latin Christendom. Augustine was a very clever guy, and he wasn't afraid to dig deep into complicated concepts in an attempt to reconcile them with the world he lived in, the world of the 5th century, which was already becoming more violent. Unfortunately, war was one area where the divine and the temporal struggled to harmonize, producing a good amount of dissonance. So Augustine dedicated some amount of time to puzzling out an arrangement. The concept of a just war was first proposed by the Greek philosopher Aristotle in the 4th century BC. He focused on the ends of the war. A just war, in his eyes, was one fought to ensure peace. Later, the Romans developed the concept of gashush belli, literally, a war case, as in a legal case that justified the declaration of war. Casus belli focused on the causes for war. After all, you had to present what amounted to a legal case for war. Augustine used these pre-Christian concepts of just war and interpreted them in the light of Christian teachings. He wrote, quote, What is the evil in war? Is it the death of some who will soon die in any case, that others may live in peaceful subjection? This is mere cowardly dislike, not any religious feeling. The real evils in war are love of violence, revengeful cruelty, fierce and implacable enmity, wild resistance, and the lust of power, and such like. And it is generally to punish these things when force is required to inflict the punishment that in obedience to God or some lawful authority, good men undertake wars. When they find themselves in such a position as regards the conduct of human affairs, that right conduct requires them to act or to make others act in this way. Otherwise, John, when the soldiers who came to be baptized asked, what shall we do, would have replied, throw away your arms, give up the service, never strike or wound or disable anyone. But knowing that such actions in battle were not murderous, but authorized by law, and that the soldiers did not thus avenge themselves, but defended the public safety, he replied, do violence to no one, accuse no one falsely, and be content with your wages. Again, in the case of the centurion who said, I'm a man under authority and have soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Christ gave due praise to his faith. He did not tell him to leave the service. But there is no need here to enter on the long discussion of just and unjust wars. End quote. Augustine then entered into the long discussion of just and unjust wars. Quote, a great deal depends on the causes for which men undertake wars and on the authority they have for doing so. For the natural order, which seeks the peace of humankind, ordains that the monarch should have the power of undertaking war if he thinks it is advisable, and that the soldiers should perform their military duties on behalf of the peace and safety of the community. When war is undertaken in obedience to God, who would rebuke or humble or crush our human pride? It must be allowed to be a righteous war, for even the wars which arise from human passion cannot harm the eternal well-being of God, nor even hurt his saints. For in the trial of their patience and the chastening of their spirit and in bearing fatherly correction, they are rather benefited than injured. No one can have any power against them but what is given to him from above. For there is no power but of God, who either orders or permits." Since, therefore, a righteous man, serving perhaps under an ungodly king, may do the duty belonging to his position in the state, in fighting by the order of his sovereign, for in some cases it is plainly the will of God that he should fight, and in others, where this is not so plain, 
it may be an unrighteous command on the part of the king, while the soldier is innocent because his position makes obedience a duty. How much more must the one be blameless who carries on war on the authority of God, of whom everyone who serves him knows that he can never require what is wrong? End quote. We can boil Augustine's comments on just war down to three requirements that, when present, can legitimize violence. Number one, the war has to be authorized by a legitimate authority, like a king or a bishop, say, the bishop of Rome. Number two, you gotta have a just reason, a casus belli, basically. And number three, the new Christian spin on things, your war should be waged without an excess of cruelty, taking care to behave honorably and with love in your heart. Now, these three prerequisites are what may deem a war just or acceptable in God's eyes. But this war was by no means holy or sanctified by God. To get to that stage, Christianity needed a bit more time in the oven. Luckily, it was about to get a crash course in all sorts of violence. Because you know what they say, them that take the sword will perish by the sword. Around the time of his death, violence consumed Augustine's world. His home, the Roman province of Africa, was brutally conquered by the Vandals. This was, in fact, the straw that broke the camel's back, as Africa was a rich province that subsidized a lot of the poorer regions of the West. Without it, the Western Roman Empire he'd grown up in was soon to be wiped off the map entirely. In its place, the barbarian kingdoms rose. As we discussed in episode 2.1, it's not like violence was not a part of the Roman Empire. It's just that it was not viewed as a particularly desirable trait, the way it was by the aristocracy of the barbarian kingdoms. In the world of Clovis and the Franks, Christian belief had to keep up, and Augustine's checklist for just wars became even more useful. Many secular and religious heads sought to make their wars fit Augustine's checklist, and in many ways, Western culture still looks to those three requirements as justifying war and murder. But again, Augustine is talking about God justifying murder, not calling for it. As the centuries went on, that line was blurred a bit. Kings and other rulers often sought to have their weapons, which they presumably used to kill folks, blessed by bishops. And Charlemagne, as we've discussed, made the church a part of his imperial structure. An imperial structure that was pretty big on making war. So of course, he had the Pope pray for his victory against rebels and enemies. And specifically, the wars against the pagan Saxons and Avars were portrayed in a Christian light. Both of these groups were eventually converted to Christianity, sometimes forcibly, and incorporated into the Frankish Empire. Conflict with pagan groups also spurred changes as to what sorts of deeds qualified you for sainthood. As Jean Fleury puts it, again my own translation, quote, The sign of the cross favored the ideological acknowledgement of combat undertaken against pagans. Those who died to defend Christianity facing them were in this way, bit by bit assimilated to martyrdom. This change became a profound evolution in religious mentalities. Like the first confessors, those Christians died for faith, killed by enemies of the cross, pagans, or false Christians. But on this occasion, said martyrs weren't unarmed victims anymore, but rather warriors that died in combat with a sword in their hand. They could even be beatified and become the blessed, objects of worship and prayers, who, in a certain way, participated in divinity. The first case of this type was produced in England, shortly before the year 1000. St. Edmund, warrior king, was beatified for having been killed by the Danes after his defeat on the battlefield. Nevertheless, he didn't die in combat, 
the defeated king was brought before his conqueror, who had him riddled with arrows, as it happened also to St. Sebastian. King Olaf of Norway was also beatified by the clergy of his country shortly after his death in 1030. This case was a warrior king who died in combat, with his weapon, so to speak, in hand. His life, however, was far from exemplar, even after his conversion to Christianity. He was violent, irascible, boastful, greedy, a womanizer. Nevertheless, from 1032 on, some miracles took place at his tomb, and he became a saint in the eyes of his people and his clergy for reasons that were both political and religious. He converted to Christianity by use of force populations that were until then pagan. The beatification of a warrior constituted an innovation, but is it even surprising in an epoch in which, as we've seen, the very saints participated in battles against lay Christian enemies and with even greater motive against pagans? End quote. Still, these were, at their core, social and cultural changes that were filtering into the religious sphere. As the second millennium got going, innovations started to come from within the Latin Christian church. Innovations that would see the church making strides towards not only sanctioning, but directing violence. In the post-Carolingian world, as we've discussed before, power tended to devolve to the local level. Now, in some earlier accounts of the period, the year 1000 has been seen as a linchpin moment in which all the rule and order of the Carolingian period broke down. Local warlords began to engage in incredibly violent conflicts that saw blood flow through the streets. But the exact degree to which constant warfare broke out at the turn of the millennium has since been debated. There's been a lot more nuance added, but still there does seem to have been a rise in endemic violence as local rulers struggled to enforce their rights, or what they considered to be their rights, with no sovereign to adjudicate. Without a king to settle disputes, more often than not, might made right. In this context, south-central France saw the peace and truce of God movements develop. Spearheaded by local bishops, these movements aimed to control the amount of bloodshed going on by limiting war to certain days and placing other restrictions on how it was to operate. The peace and truce of God movements have traditionally been seen as a futile attempt to put an end to the anarchy of post-Carolingian France. Desperate bishops pleading with bloodthirsty nobles to please make peace. As I mentioned though, this reading has been reinterpreted in recent years and given more nuance. Post-Carolingian France was probably pretty violent, yeah, but not the wicka wicka wow wow west it was once thought to be. And the peace slash truce of God movements might have made reference to a Quentin Tarantino-esque world but it seems the bishops leading these movements were more concerned with protecting church property than creating an all-around peaceful society. The structure of the councils associated with these movements developed out of previous Carolingian-era councils and used a lot of the same language, so in many cases, they were just reappropriating Carolingian-era moralizing rhetoric, not reacting to a wholly new level of warfare. Still, these councils were a key step in finding a way to place lay knights and the violence they created under the purview of the church. The fact that they used Carolingian imperial administrative patterns to do so is no coincidence. The bishops were trying to fill the role that had once been held by the all-powerful emperor. As Christopher Tierman puts it in God's War, quote, the peace and truce of God movements, sporadic, local, regional, and ineffectual though they were, provided, if not a model for the laity, than a pattern for the clergy that directly influenced the inception of the First Crusade. The role of the knight was couched in positive language as protector of Christian peace, specifically of the church and its interests. The clergy assumed leadership in tackling the material as well as moral ills of the temporal world, 
and commanded the laity. Oaths bound laymen into corporate action for religious end. Peace. Logically, if knights were forbidden to pursue their profession within Christendom, then just causes outside had to be found. It was no coincidence that Urban II's speech launching the First Crusade echoed in setting, style, and possibly even content exhortations of the peace and truce movement. End quote. With the groundwork for how to phrase sovereignty over knights and the violence they produced completed by local bishops, the Bishop of Rome decided to get in on the game as well. We've actually seen some of these attempts before. In episode 1.2, Pope Leo IX was himself leading armies on the battlefield in 1053 at the Battle of Civitate. Remember that Leo was one of the German popes named by the German emperor, Henry III. So he had at his disposal a large number of German troops, those Swabians with huge proto Zweihänder swords. Pope Leo offered these troops remission of penance and absolution of sins. When Leo's successor, Pope Nicholas II, ended up allying with the Normans, he not only sicked them on the Muslims of Sicily, but provided them with papal banners for their invasion, lending their brutal carnage an aura of holy favor. And then there's Nicholas's successor, Alexander II, who, if you'll recall, was the first pope elected by the reform protocol laid out in In Nomine Domini. Alexander sanctioned a very different Norman invasion, that of William the Bastard in 1066. For obvious reasons, the Norman invasion of England is much better known in English-speaking circles than the invasion of southern Italy and Sicily, but just in case you're not familiar, it was basically a three-way contest for control of the Kingdom of England. The local contender was the Anglo-Saxon Harold Godwinson, and from the east you had the King of Norway, Harold Hardrada, who actually fought alongside Normans when he was serving as a Varangian guard for the Byzantines. And from the south, you had the Duke of Normandy, William the Bastard. Pope Alexander sided with William and gave his papal blessing, as well as banners, to the endeavor. When William's Norman forces cut down those of Harold Godwinson at the famous Battle of Hastings, the Bishop of Rome's approval hung in the air above them. However, the Norman forces were still required to seek penance for their actions. This was still only a just war, not a holy war. That is to say that participation in it was seen as a necessary evil not as an action that could actually bring you closer to God. Though we're teetering on the edge of that step. By the late 11th century, we are on the threshold of war good. Enter Pope Gregory VII. This guy, I tell you, by the end of his conflict-filled papacy, he was promising absolution to all those who supported his cause. Well, and excommunicating anyone who didn't. Of course, this violence still had to be done following the third of Augustine's requirements. Gregory stressed that it had to be done for the right reasons and not for material gain, and done in a correct way. Gregory also tried to develop a bit more of an official papal army. There was his 1074 attempt to lead an army in person to beat the shit out of Robert Giscar and the Normans, and then fight off the Seljuk Turks in Anatolia. But there were also the Fideles Sancti Petri, St. Peter's Faithful. This was basically Pope Gregory's fan club, a group of knights and other aristocrats from throughout Europe that were lay supporters of his cause. Matilde di Canosa, la Gran Contesa, was probably among the most powerful of his fideles. But there were others, and later on we'll see how this network connected many of the nobles that participated in the First Crusade, and formed a loose connection between various different Utremer rulers. For now, we can only say that Gregory's attempts were not particularly successful, he innovated greatly in terms of what the Pope could work with ideologically, though. However, 
it would be up to his successor to actually put these ideas into practice. As I mentioned last time, before becoming Pope Urban II, Odo of Châtillon was born into an aristocratic French family. Unlike the more humble origins of his mentor Gregory, Odo's upbringing made it so he was better positioned to understand the underlying social practices of the knightly class, and how to motivate them to participate in holy war. It's not out of the question to assume that he probably had childhood aspirations of being a knight himself before being sent off to the Abbey of Cluny. Urban also stood on the shoulders of Gregory VII and the Peace and Truce of God movements, which had created the language with which to dominate the knightly class and present him as a force for good. To be honest, we can't really say that Urban was innovating much at all. Part of the reason why is that we actually have precious little writing from Pope Urban. For example, we don't know exactly what he said at Claremont. His speech is preserved by some eyewitnesses, but they only wrote what they remembered after the fact, after the First Crusade had been successful, and after Urban himself had died. What we do have, though, shows that Urban wasn't really breaking new ground. He used many of the same arguments as his predecessors. It certainly was shocking and controversial for many, but much of Latin Christianity's capacity to be shocked had been used up by Pope Gregory. So Urban seemed to be just another one of those crazy popes. And in a sense, Urban was only saying what everyone was thinking. Everyone knew knights were cool as shit and that infidels sucked, so why wouldn't God want folks to go kill him? To quote Christopher Tierman again, Much of what was proclaimed as new by the call to arms in 1095 represented old wine in new bottles. The wine press from which it came was grimed with use and age. Urban did have some new twists to this appeal, but in terms of how he viewed holy war, he was very much in line with what Gregory had established as the new norm. Tierman later adds, Urban, following the logic of his mentor, Gregory VII, argued in 1095-1096 that not only was the war meritorious and thus participation not blameworthy, so too was the fighting, which refashioned into a religious act combining penance and charity, quote, for the love of God and their neighbor, would earn substantial merit rather than dutiful expiation as with William of Normandy's troops at Hastings in 1066. End quote. As an aside, I like that Tierman splits the difference between calling him William the Conqueror and William the Bastard by calling him William of Normandy. It was really after the First Crusade that Latin Christianity was forced to come to terms with what this all actually meant. Gregory had failed after all, but Urban hadn't. And to really understand how Urban's contemporaries viewed Holy War, we have to examine how they carved out a space for this event. Sealing in Holy War, Crusades, though still not known by that name, as a part of Latin Christian belief and practice. The context in which Jesus foretelling his vengeance at the hands of the Franks could be a perfectly normal thing to sing about. In chapter 6 of The First Crusade and the History of Crusading, Jonathan Riley Smith focuses on three monks who wrote histories immediately after the First Crusade. Likely using the Gesta Francorum, written by an anonymous soldier, probably an Italo-Norman in the army of Bowman of Tarento during the First Crusade. These three monks are Robert the Monk, Guibert of Nogent, and Baldric of Bourgogne. One aspect I find particularly hilarious is how much all three of these guys shit on the writing of the anonymous soldier, who was clearly not from an educated background, like they were. In explaining why he's rewriting the anonymous account, Robert says the original was unsatisfactory, quote, partly because it contained no description of the foundation of the crusade at the Council of Claremont, partly because it neglected to adorn the sequence of such beautiful events, and the literary composition staggered in a rough manner. 
Uh, this is Riley Smith's translation, and I don't have the original Latin close at hand, so I'm not sure what he's translating as crusade here. Probably pilgrimage or expedition, because crusade didn't really enter the lexicon as a term until later on. Anyway, Guibert of Nogent gave similar reasons. He says, quote, There was indeed a history, but it was written in words more artless than correct. In it there were departures from the rules of grammar in many passages, and it often had the effect of deadening the interest of the reader with the flat insipidity of ordinary speech. At a time when we see an enthusiasm for the study of grammar everywhere, and we know that this teaching is available to the poorest of persons on account of the great number of scholars, it would be a scandal not to write about the glory of our old time as we ought, or at least to the best of our ability, and on the contrary to allow its history to remain available in the uncouth roughness of ordinary speech. Meanwhile, Baldrick of Burgoy says... I was not worthy to be among that blessed knighthood, nor have I told of things that I have seen, but I do not know which anonymous author had published a little book on this affair, which was very crude. He contrived to tell the truth, but because of the uncouthness of his writing, he cheapened a noble subject, and the inelegant and artless language turned the more guileless away from it at once. I engaged in the study of the subject, not desirous of empty glory, nor puffed up with swollen pride, but I wrote the sentences carefully in order to please future Christianity. What snobs? His Latin is really not that bad. It's, it's not classical, but it's readable. You know, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Anonymous, you know, haters. Haters gonna hate, hate, hate. Anyway. These three fellas, much like the Chanson of Antioche, are obviously working after the fact, but they build off of pre-existing ideas and concerns, and attempt to figure out how to justify this new holy war. Anon's account was that of a soldier. These three monks are trying to smooth out the rough edges, not only grammatically, but also theologically. One of the easiest ways to do so was to find justification in Christian writing, there was a bunch of referencing various prophecies and talking about the end days and all that, but specifically when trying to find a precedent for these new holy warriors, most of the parallels came from the Old Testament, which unlike the New Testament, was much more pro-war and often had God siding with his chosen people, the Jews, as they entered into conflict with their enemies. But of course, the Crusaders and their cause were even more divine than the Israelites of old because they were more righteous or whatever, blah, 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 the whole thing. We can also see them building on the moral justifications for war that had been developing in the reformist circles of the 10th and 11th centuries in alluding to the violent environment they had grown up in, which may have not been so violent in reality, but was at least perceived that way. For example, Guibert of Nogent directly references the repurposing of existing violent tendencies towards pious aims. He wrote, quote, Wars traditionally have been fought absolutely legitimately only for the protection of the Holy Church. But because nobody has had this right intention, and the lust for possessions has pervaded the hearts of all, God has instituted in our time holy wars, so that the order of knights and the crowd running in their wake, who following the example of the ancient pagans have been engaged in slaughtering one another, might find a new way of gaining salvation. And so they are not forced to abandon secular affairs completely by choosing the monastic life or any religious profession, as used to be the custom, but can attain, in some measure, God's grace while pursuing their own careers with the liberty and in the dress to which they are accustomed. If the Maccabees in days of old were renowned for their piety because they fought for rituals in the temple, then you too, Christian soldiers, may justly defend the freedom of the homeland by the exercise of arms. 
Until now, you have fought unjust wars. You have often savagely brandished your spears at each other in mutual carnage, only out of greed and pride, for which you deserve eternal destruction and the certain ruin of damnation. Now we are proposing that you should fight wars which contain the glorious reward of martyrdom, in which you can gain the title of present and eternal glory. End quote. So in Guibert's eyes, God knows folks just love all the killing and stuff, and so he's given them a way to keep killing, but now in his name. From this starting point, these monks were actually able to paint the crusading army in their own image, as parallels to monks. Just like monks, they renounced earthly possessions and committed themselves to poverty, at least temporarily, while on the first crusade. In short, this was a way for knights to become part of the church and directly serve Christ. A way of thinking that had its roots in the type of rhetoric we find coming out of the peace and truce of God movements and the writing of Gregory VII. And it would have echoing effects in later developments, like the concept of chivalry and the holy orders. In the church practices that led to the First Crusade, we see both the acknowledgement of warrior aristocracies and the desire of the church to fill the universal imperial vacuum come together. But you know what's not here? Any discussion of Islam. Sure, all these guys spent some time characterizing the Seljuk Turks in particular as demonic infidel forces guilty of all sorts of crimes. But that was, in a way, just paying lip service to the need for a just cause as expressed by St. Augustine. Holy war, as conceived by medieval Europeans, was not a response to Muslim aggression or representative of any sort of clash of civilizations. Muslims and Christians didn't really get along, but neither did Muslims and Muslims or Christians and Christians. And the type of rhetoric demonizing enemies that we get across the religious border is not really all that different from how medieval Europeans described any of their enemies. Henry IV described Gregory VII as a frickin' necromancer. So, for an even better example, I want to talk about that famous crusader mantra, Deus Vult, or in the more romance-influenced vulgar versions of Latin, Deus lo Vult, or Deus le Vult. You can compare it to Spanish, Dios lo quiere, or French, Dieu le veut. In English, God wills it or God wants it. This cry didn't come out of nowhere, and despite modern connotations, it's not that different from Diesh Aya, may God be here or may there be God, the Norman war cry chanted when William the Bastard Conqueror of Normandy defeated a Christian army at Hastings. All these medieval armies invoked God because they viewed themselves as moral, and their morality was based in religion. The fact that God's name was invoked when fighting Muslim armies doesn't really say anything specific about that combat as opposed to any others. Because holy war in general was not specific to Christian-Muslim interactions. If you are well-versed in the Crusades, you know that in the centuries after 1095, holy wars would be declared against not only pagans and Muslims, but other Christians. The Fourth Crusade, which destroyed Constantinople in 1204, and the Albigensian Crusade a few years later fought against Christians in France. None of these events were perversions of crusading spirit. They perfectly matched the desires of 11th century reform. They were features, not flaws. If Urban could have found a way to directly target the German Emperor Henry IV, he probably would have. After all, Gregory's proto-crusade had infidel Muslim targets, the Turks of Anatolia, alongside Christian targets, the Normans of southern Italy. The Latin Christian church needed a way to raise armies. And well, now they had one, and they were going to use it. Against... Whoever. Back in 1095, that whoever happened to be the Muslims. It was in many ways an incidental choice. Muslims were the boogeyman of the era, 
The pagans of the north were slowly being converted, but the Muslims had mostly been unassailable and had loomed large in the nightmares of Latin Christendom for centuries, mostly because of their economic superiority, which in the post-Abbasid world had begun to fracture, making them an easier target. In episode 1.10, we talked about the possible environmental changes that possibly weakened the powers of the Eastern Mediterranean and led to the instability we spent all last season discussing. There were also environmental and ecological changes working in Western Europe's favor, which we'll be talking about in the future. Muslims were being targeted because, for the first time, the Christians of Western Europe could finally take them on. For the Pope specifically, striking at the Holy Land would also, hopefully, allow for the reparation of relationships with Constantinople and protection of Jerusalem, as well as the Christians of the East, were common elements in claims to universality, which the Pope was hoping to wrench away from all the Roman emperors running around to establish papal supremacy. So in the end, war good. Because if the reform papacy was going to have influence in the secular world of knights, it needed to be good. For the Pope to direct and control violence, he needed to have some sort of way to incorporate it into a theological framework. St. Augustine had explained how a war could be just, but in the context of medieval Europe, which prized the knight above all else, the church needed to also find a way to prize and reward this warrior caste. Holy war against Muslims, as proclaimed by Pope Urban II, was a means to an end, not the end itself. If Pope Urban succeeded where Pope Gregory had failed in convincing hordes of Latin Christians to take up the cross and go east, it's not completely due to this conception of holy war, which was and still is quite a thorny concept for anyone to wrap their head around. If Urban's appeal in 1095 innovated in anything at all, it was in how this expedition was packaged and sold. For holy war in the service of Christ to really take, it had to graft itself onto an institution that everyone knew and loved. A penitential act that was known to be sacred and which could wash away your sins and assure your place in heaven. So get the bags in the van and make sure to pack some snacks for the road, because next time on History of the Uchmer, we're going on a pilgrimage. <laughs>